enough to have a guest preacher today. Her name is Nicole Bullock. She is the senior and lead teaching pastor at Blue Oaks Covenant Church. Have you ever been to Blue Oaks Covenant Church? You have not yet. You should go. They're now meeting at Brooklyn Center High School. So if you're over that way, you should come and, and visit them. Uh, Nicole is married to her husband, Jeff, and they have two, two girls, energetic girls is what, how you described them, I think, right? And uh, they've been doing amazing things. How, how old is Blue Oak now? Three and a half years, yeah, three and a half years. So Stephanie and I had the privilege of meeting Nicole just as they were starting up as a church and following some similar thought patterns to what Mill City's been trying to do in terms of engaging the neighborhood. And they've been seeing some success in especially helping families in that particular community who have gone through a lot of loss and offering a place of healing for them. Uh, Stephanie and I have both learned a ton from Nicole and from her friendship. And so it's a real honor for her to come and preach for us today. Would you please welcome Pastor Nicole Bullock. Good morning. Thank you, Mike, for that nice introduction. He uh, told me he was going to tell a story about my early uh, teaching days uh, at Bethel, and so I'm glad he didn't. Whew. I want you guys to keep a good impression of me. Um, but thanks, Mike and Steph, uh, for the invite and for having me. Uh, they are awesome. I've known them for several years now and had an opportunity uh, just to connect, get to know them and hear their heart for ministry and hear their heart um, for this community and learn a lot about you all. So I haven't met you all, but it is an honor to be here. Um, I've heard a ton about your church and the work that you're doing, and it is absolutely inspiring. So I'm really glad to be here with you all today. So trying to catch my breath. I'm winded after walking up the stairs. Y'all pray for me. I made a New Year's resolution to get my act together, but I can barely make it up the stairs, so I'm in trouble. God. Woo. Um, so I did hear that you all are, you know, a little bit more quiet. It's not necessarily an amen and out loud kind of congregation, and that's all right. But I'm guessing there may be one or two folks here. You know, you say amen when I talk. Is, is that all right? Is there one or two ameners? Yes. All right. I'm, I'm ready then. Y'all ready? I got my amen corners lined up. I'm good to go. I'm good to go. And so I just want to bring you greetings from our church. They knew that I was coming here. And so they uh, give you a big hearty welcome. If you are in the neighborhood, feel free to visit us on a Sunday morning and check us out. We'd love to have you. So I'm going to jump into what I'm going to talk about today. And so if you have your Bibles or whatever gadgets you have, I know it's old school to carry a paper Bible. Um, so, But if you have your paper Bible or your gadgets, whatever you got, I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And so I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to pray, and then I'm just going to get into the message for today. That sound good? Great. Luke chapter 10. Give me one second. I'll make one more adjustment. There we go. Luke chapter 10, verse 20, starting at verse 25. And it says, One day an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him, this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him this, take care of the man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time that I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Pray with me. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for this opportunity together on this frigid morning here in Minnesota. Um, but God, even though it's cold out there, we thank you, God, for the warmth of this community, God, the warmth and the fire of your word this morning that is going to stir us, God, to action. And so, Father, we just invite your Holy Spirit in. And Holy Spirit, would you come in? Would you change us? Would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you draw us into deeper relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And we all say together, I don't know what that rumor was. Y'all are all about amens. I like it. So this is a really familiar story, right? Um, if you've been around church for a long time and if you uh, have your Bibles and you look at the little titles before you read verses, this passage would be entitled The Good um, Samaritan. It's a story that's really familiar to all of us and it's a really interesting story. But I just want to quickly before I get into um, uh, just some thoughts that I have from the text and what I want to share with you. I just want to do a really quick recap. And I like doing recaps because I'm a storyteller at heart. And so I like telling stories. And um, I, like, I like kind of adding my own nuances and personality and coloring the story so it just feels more authentic, so it feels just more relevant to us, right? And so there's this religious expert, and he um, is a person who's believed to be a scribe. He's really smart. He's in this highly honored profession, and he's an expert on religious law. And so he asked Jesus a question, a question that many people want to know the answer to. He says, Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to his question. Um, but that wasn't enough for the man. He wanted to bait Jesus into an argument, right, uh, which isn't which wasn't a very smart idea by him. But that's what he wanted to do. Uh, little did he know he was going to lose, I guess. If you can lose, I don't know how that works. But um, Jesus responded to him, and he wants to bait Jesus into an argument. And so he asked Jesus to explain his response to his question. He says, well, Jesus, then who is my neighbor? 
And I love these sorts of questions that we see in and throughout scripture. And this question kind of reminds me of the question Peter asked Jesus one time when they were walking. He says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Now, there's always a customary sort of response to these sorts of questions. For Peter, he already knew the custom was to forgive seven times. But Jesus, being who Jesus is, always calls us to go above and beyond. So he answered that question to Peter saying, what, 70 times Seven, And so here this man is going, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he's expecting a customary sort of response. He's testing Jesus's intellect. He's testing whether or not Jesus will answer appropriately. See, now because everybody knew that the neighbor was their fellow Jews, uh, the, the people who uh, looked like them, the people who talked like them, the people who had the same customs as them, those were the neighbors, so much so that there was was almost like a non-neighbor category. People who weren't in your circle were considered to be non-neighbors. And so here this religious expert is trying to bait Jesus into an argument saying, Jesus, well then who really is my neighbor? And he's sort of expecting some sort of customary response, but Jesus being who Jesus is does not answer the question directly. He actually goes into a story. And he goes into a really interesting story where he begins to tell the story of this man who is stuck in a ditch. And what I really like about this story is that Jesus sees what's happening, what's lying beneath this man's question, what's lying beneath his, he's, he's trying to discern something about Jesus, but Jesus is going, I really see what your motive is. I see what you're trying to do. And you may be wondering, well, what is this man trying to do? And I believe that he's really uh, trying to attack Jesus. He's trying to bait Jesus into this argument. And really at the base of his question is this sort of spiritual meteorocracy, this spiritual apathy, right? Really, he's saying to Jesus, how little can I do to get a great big reward? How little can I do to get this huge reward of eternal life? So Jesus being more concerned about the underlying issue, which was spiritual apathy, he actually gets into a story or a parable about a man who's stuck in a ditch. Now, here's the thing about spiritual apathy, right? We all experience it. If we're honest, we all experience spiritual apathy. We just, we get tired, we get exhausted, we don't always realize why we do what we do. Why are we coming to church? Why are we serving? Why are we reading scripture? Why are we doing these things, right? And we kind of get tired with it. We get tired with doing these kind of things and it feels like kind of just empty minutiae, just things that we do back and forth. But we will all instantly admit that we still want the reward of eternal life, right? We still want the reward of being able to know Jesus, sit in the presence of Jesus, experience the love of Jesus. But that work part, mm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Now, truth be told, right, we all started off the beginning of this year, and you probably had a resolution around doing something different, doing something new. For me, I named that one of the things I wanted to do was to get healthier, right? So I'm going to the gym, and I'm trying to do all of these things. But sometimes I sit and I go, why am I doing all this work? I still huffed and puffed getting up like seven stairs, Jesus. 
Why? Right? And then you watch these lovely commercials that tell you, hey, you take this pill and then this thing happens. You do this thing for seven days and this thing happens. And you know what? Instantly, anybody in their right mind is drawn to something that doesn't take a lot of effort but yields a lot of reward, right? Doesn't take a lot of effort but yields a lot of reward. That's kind of what it's like being spiritually apathetic, right? We don't necessarily want to put a lot of effort in, but we want a lot of reward. And one of my favorite books about discipleship, um, The Cost of Discipleship, anybody read that? Yeah, a few people here. Um, But Dietrich Bonhoeffer offers some really great insights on discipleship. But one of the things that he talks about, he says, um, when God calls us, it is a costly thing. When God calls us into his presence, he calls us to himself. It is a costly thing. Uh, Dietrich von Hoffer says in his book that when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. He calls him to come and die. He says one of the first sufferings that we experience as a Christian, one of the first things that we have to die to, one of the first things that we have to experience when we say yes to Jesus is that we have to abandon the attachments of this world. We have to abandon our attachments to this world. And let's be honest, that's difficult, right? Who doesn't like their attachments? Who don't like the things that make us feel comfortable, right? And as a matter of fact, not only do we like them, sometimes we feel like that is the reason why we're living. We're living so we can get more attachments. We live for the comfort of those attachments. We live for the expansion of those attachments. We live for the continued gain of those attachments. Why? Because those things make us feel significant. They make us feel secure. They make us feel important. But ultimately, Jesus is saying, when you come to me, those attachments become insignificant. They become unimportant. And if we're not careful, right, if we're not careful about these attachments and wanting to hold on too tightly to our attachments, we risk not living out the call that Christ has called us to live out. We risk not achieving the work that God has called us to do. We risk not being all who Jesus has called us to be. You may be wondering, wait a minute, how did we get here from the story? Well, here's how we got here, because in this parable, Jesus talks about two religious people, a priest and a temple assistant. And I'm going to go ahead and argue that these two have some sort of spiritual apathy in their life because it says that they came by this man during a time of need. It says that the first man that came by, the priest, it said he happened to come by this man, that he stumbled upon him by chance. And I really thought that that was interesting, that he stumbled upon him by chance. Jesus, why would you include those words by chance? And mostly we look at this story and we would would just keep going. We'd read, uh, write by those words by chance. But I thought something stood, something stood out to me, something significant when it said it happened or by chance he stopped by this man. And I thought to my Myself, how we as Christians, right, we like some things, well, probably most things, we like those things to be neat and tidy. 
We like things to be neat and tidy. We like our opportunities to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to our community. We like those opportunities to be neat and tidy. We want our church to organize them. We want to go through some organization that has already set something up. We want those opportunities to be neat and tidy. But the truth is this, that most opportunities to be the hands and the feet of Jesus will not be neat and will not be tidy. They will present themselves at the least convenient time, and they will most certainly come at an unexpected cost. The opportunities to present yourself as the hands and feet of Jesus will most likely come at a most unexpected time, and it will most certainly cost you something. And such was the case with this priest and even this temple assistant who sought by and he saw him. And they saw this man laying in the ditch, but perhaps it wasn't really a convenient Perhaps they said, you know what, I have to go, I'm, I'm in a rush, right? Because to stop would have certainly cost them something. To stop at this, with this man lying in the ditch would have cost them something. Something that they were not willing to pay. So they both chose to go to the other side. And here's the thing when you read this story, you know, common commentaries say different things about why they chose to go to the opposite side of the road. Some suggest that they didn't want to be, um, you know, risk spiritual impurity or they were afraid that they would be accosted by the robbers themselves. There are all these things to kind of speculate. And some would even argue that their concerns, the concerns that we're imposing upon them, the ones that we're thinking that they had, that these concerns were actually valid. They were actually valid. They were concerned, and so they had to cross the road. And as I read this, I can't help but to uh, put myself in this story and say, how does this story parallel to my life? And whenever we read scripture, we have to ask ourselves the same question. How does this story parallel to my own life? How many times have I crossed to the other side of the road? How many times have not I not been willing to stop because it is I'm too busy. I have too much to do. It is inconvenient. It's an unexpected cost that I am not willing to pay, right? And here's the thing about it. We can be justified in our actions and going to the other side of the road because you say, perhaps I don't know too much about that situation, so I'm going to go to the other side of the road. Wait, I don't live in that community, so I'm going to go to the other side of the road. I don't have the resources that I think I should have, so I'm going to go to the other side of the road. Or the ugly truth just may be, I don't want to spend my time doing this so I am going to go to the other side of the road this priest and this temple assistant they decided that what they had to do took priority over caring for a person who was hurting they didn't want to risk the dangers of falling into the hands of the same robber. They didn't want to risk helping someone who was hurting. They didn't want to risk their time. They didn't want to risk their energy. They didn't want to risk their reputation. They didn't want to risk their resources. They didn't want to risk it. But here is the truth, good people. 
that it is risky business when we decide we are going to help hurting people. It is risky business when we decide we're going to lean over the ditch and we're going to help someone in need. And don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh, this is really easy to do, just help someone out, you know, because there's risk involved and we all have our excuses or our reasons as to why we don't want to reach out to someone who is hurting. I have found the way I've answered this question for myself when I've said to myself, Nicole, why don't you want to reach out to someone who is hurting? And here's the answer that I came up with, an answer that I'm sure will resonate with many of you here today. And the answer is this, is that it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to hear how someone else is hurting and I can't help it. It is uncomfortable for me to hear what pain and anguish someone is going through and I can't relate to it. It is uncomfortable to hear what someone else is experiencing that I have never experienced. It is uncomfortable to validate someone else's hurt, someone else's pain when I myself don't understand it. It is just simply uncomfortable. So it's easier for me to pretend like the person isn't hurting or it's easier for me to pretend like the hurt that they're naming actually isn't a valid hurt. I know this is hard to say amen to, isn't it? But that's me. That's, that's my story. I, I, I get uncomfortable. I'm not sure how to approach people in their hurt. And so sometimes I want to shove their hurt down really deep deep, deep down, so I don't have to encounter it. Why? Because if I really stopped to observe, if I really stopped to absorb what was happening, it would make me actually have to confront the ugliness that is in this world, and then more so, it would make me have to confront the ugliness that is in myself. It's hard reaching down in the ditch. It's hard helping those who are hurting because it is risky business and it makes us come to a place where we encounter the ugliness that is in this world and most uncomfortable, the ugliness that lies within us. And when that confrontation happens, right? That confrontation where you say to yourself, wow, there is ugliness in this world. Wow, there is ugliness in myself. It leads you to then an inevitable question. At least it led me to an inevitable question. And that question, or questions I should say, that question was, who then is my neighbor and what am I going to do about their hurting? Who is my neighbor and what am I going to do about them hurting? It's really easy to read this story about the Good Samaritan and go, hey, I want to be the Good Samaritan. But it is a process, right, to assess whether or not uh, we would actually be this Samaritan in the story. It's a process to ask ourselves, would we be like the temple assistant? Would we be like the priest? Both who were in a hurry, both who didn't want to be inconvenienced, both who didn't want to stop and encounter an unexpected cost. Would we be like that? Would we be able to, when we see the hurt in the world, when we look on the news and we see issues of immigration, when we look on the news and we see issues of, of, of police brutality, when we look in our communities and we see children who are hungry and starving, people who are displaced from their homes, how do we look at the hurt and engage it? Do we ask ourselves the question, who 
is my neighbor and what am I going to do about their hurting? It's not an easy question to ask and it's definitely not an easy one to answer, but I'll tell you where is a good place to start. A good place to start when you confront that ugliness in the world, when you confront perhaps the, the ugliness that is even within yourself. A good place to start is to say, God, I repent for my spiritual apathy. If I have been like this priest who by chance came by someone, but I was too busy. If I have been like this temple assistant who didn't want to stop and take and help a hand, God, would you forgive me for my spiritual apathy? I think that's a good first step. It doesn't solve all the problems. It doesn't answer everything in the world, but it does say this. You are presenting yourself and you're saying, God, I'm ready to be available. I'm ready to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. I'm ready to share the gospel. I'm ready to show your love to people who are hurting. But God, first start in me. Which leads me to the second part of this story that is really interesting. Which is actually the part about the Samaritan. The Samaritan who uh, is called good. And it's really interesting. It's like Jesus doesn't call the Samaritan good. We, we have called the Samaritan good. But uh, the Samaritan, we can infer that he's good because Jesus makes him the hero of the story. But I like it because Jesus just doesn't answer this religious expert's question, right? He actually tells the story, and then he puts a little twist in the story. He puts a twist in the story. He names the religious priest. He names the temple assistant. And then all of a sudden, there's this Samaritan that comes along. Let's read those verses again in Luke 10. Luke 10, and I'm going to start at verse 33. It says, Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I am here. What a good neighbor, right? This man is being a good neighbor. I can't help but to think of the, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Did anybody else think of that while I was preaching? I don't know. The things that come to my mind that I don't say out loud while doing these things. But I, I just want to point out the lovely irony in this story, right, and why this, uh, why this Samaritan has been labeled as good, right? And it's really interesting because in Jesus' story, the Samaritan is actually like the quintessential bad guy, okay? He's the bad guy, and here's why. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They didn't, they didn't get along. They hated each other. And this was the case because when Jews went into um, Assyrian captivity, many of the Jews intermarried with the Assyrians. Therefore, we have a group of people called the Samaritans, and uh, they were the results of this intermarrying. And so there was kind of like this special dislike, this special hatred toward um, this group of people in between these groups. And so Jesus, as he's telling this story about the neighbor, he actually names who would be 
quote unquote a bad guy, he names that person as the hero. See, so the folks who were listening to Jesus tell this story, they would have understood that, right? And as they understood that, they would have been absolutely taken aback that Jesus made the Samaritan the good guy in the story. Not the priest, not the temple assistant, not the good church-going folks. He didn't make them the winner. He actually made the Samaritan the good guy. And so, you know, uh, you know, as you read this text, you know, naturally the question that arises is, well, was the Samaritan a righteous man? Now, here's the thing. We don't know. We don't know anything about the Samaritan other than what the story tells us. But that's a natural question that arises um, when you read the story. Well, was he a righteous man? And the answer, honestly, we don't know, but it is, it's a moot point. And here's why it's a moot point, because the righteous people in the story had already failed. Right? They had already failed. They, they didn't do what they were supposed to do in the story. And the point is not whether or not the Samaritan is a righteous man or an unrighteous man. I believe that there is a bigger picture that Jesus is trying to get everybody to see, is that help kind of came from this unlikely source. Help came from this unlikely place. A person who should not have even been in the story is helping someone who they have no sort of relationship. They have nothing in common. As a matter of fact, they shouldn't even like each other. They shouldn't even be in the same place. But Jesus makes this person the good the hero in the story. And it tells us that the Samaritan ends up doing six things. The Samaritan ends up doing six things. It says, one, he actually took the time, check this out, right? He walked over and he went to him. Not only did he go to him, it says that he soothed his wounds, right, with oil and wine. Then he bandaged them up. Then he took the man, he placed him on the donkey. He took him to an inn where he spent the day caring for him. And then he went a step further. He tells the innkeeper if he needs to stay an extra day or something like that, if there are extra charges because he decided he was going to watch a movie on Netflix, on TV or something, don't worry about it. I know there weren't hotels then. I was just trying to solicit a laugh, but that didn't work. But there we go. There, I got it, right? And so he tells him if there are any extra charges, you know, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. And so here's what I think Jesus is trying to do in this story, right? Because there are people who are listening, and they're probably thinking to themselves, there's no way I can be like this Samaritan. Because Jesus tells them, go and do likewise. Do the same thing that this Samaritan did. When he says, who is the good neighbor? Who is the person, right, who did uh, the most work? He says, the one who showed compassion, the one who showed mercy. Jesus says, you go and you do the same. And there may be some people who are sitting here today, perhaps even people who are listening to Jesus tell this story, and they were going, you know what, there's no way I can be like this Samaritan. I just don't have enough in common with the people who I see hurting. There's no way I can do this. I don't have enough resources. There's no way I can be a good neighbor. I don't have enough education. There is no way I can be a good neighbor. I am tied down with all of these things happening in my own life. There is no way I can be a good neighbor. I am a single parent. There is no way I can be a good neighbor. I am a college student and I have a mountain of debt. There is no way I can take time to be 
a good neighbor, or perhaps you're just a person, you're going, I have nothing to offer. My life doesn't look good. There's stuff about me that is messed up. There is no way I can be a good neighbor. But I want to challenge you today and say you can be a good neighbor. Because there's this lovely kingdom principle, at least I like to call it a kingdom principle, which is this, is that God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called, right? He doesn't wait until you're ready to say, okay, you can do it. He qualifies you the moment that he invites you to be that neighbor. And just real practically, right? If you're a person, you go, man, I, I, don't, I still don't know if I could do that. I still don't know if I can engage in this context. I still don't know if I can engage in this conversation. You know what? Take baby steps. Do like the Samaritan did. Those six things, you can look at them and you can do them for yourself. Just actually go over to the person that's hurting right? Go to the place or the thing, the conversation where the people are hurting. Offer a listening and empathetic ear, right? Don't try to fix it, but offer a listening and empathetic ear. And if you are, if, if you are in a place where you are so blessed and you have resources, share whatever those resources are. Listen, you don't have to have a lot to be a good Samaritan. You don't have to have a lot to really uh, offer what you need to offer for people. All you need is a willingness to say yes. A willingness to say yes to God, to start where you are and to use what you have. And I believe that God is looking for people to respond to him like Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 6, right? There's this conversation in heaven happening. Isaiah, the prophet, is a part of it, and he hears the question, who will go for us? Who will I send? And Isaiah is eager. He raises his hand. He goes, hear me, God. Send, send me. Send me. I, I want to go. I want to be on the assignment. Send me. And God accepts his eager reply of yes, and immediately the first thing he does is he places right this coal on Isaiah's lip, and he cleanses him, and he and then Isaiah repents. And I believe that there's something significant about that moment of repentance is that if we want to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus, if we are eagerly waving our hands, yes, God, send me. Yes, I want to go. Yes, I want to be that person. Yes, I'm willing to be the good neighbor to that friend. I'm willing to be the good neighbor to that person or to that community or to that group. I'm willing to be the good neighbor. Yes, yes, yes. I believe that it starts with a moment of repentance. Not because you're a bad person, not because you've made some sort of terrible mistakes, but because we live in an apathetic culture which is constantly telling us that the things of God are not as important as the things or these attachments that are in this world. So we start with a repentant heart and in a repentant place and say, God, we are sorry that we have missed the mark. 
We are sorry for the times that we have said we have been too busy. We are sorry for the times that we have said we don't have enough understanding because, God, if I have you, I have all that I need because nothing is impossible with you. You make all things possible. So, God, I am sorry for feeling like I was not enough, that I did not have enough because you are enough to me, for me, and in me. Therefore, I can go and live out your call to be a good neighbor. I can go and do as Micah 6 and 8 says, right? Go, do good, love mercy, walk humbly with God, do what is right. In our quest to live as God has called us to live, in our quest to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, in our quest to be more like Christ day in and day out. It has to start within us. It has to start with this sense within us that, God, we are being vulnerable to your movement. We are being vulnerable to your spirit, but we also want to be vulnerable, God, to your forgiveness to your forgiveness, that you would come in and that you would wipe our slate clean, that you would forgive us for the ways that we have felt like we could not engage. You would forgive us for the ways that we have felt not felt like we could not connect and do relationship. You would forgive us for our spiritual apathy. You would forgive us to the ways that we have succumbed to the craziness that this world says to us. Forgive us, God, for the times we were like the priests, for the times we were like the temple assistant. Forgive us for not always trusting, but help us from this moment on to be that good neighbor because here's the truth this world this world that we live in this community okay let's make it smaller this community that we live in is kind of like that road from Jericho to Jerusalem it's filled with treachery it's filled with danger. It's filled with disappointment. And here's the truth. Many travelers have succumbed to that disappointment, danger, and treachery. And they're lying there and they're waiting for a community. They're waiting for the local church. They're waiting for you. They're waiting for me. They're waiting to be cared for by a group of people, by people, by individuals who have said, God, help me to be a merciful beacon of hope in dark places. Help me to say yes when I want to say no. Help me to repent when I want to reject. Help me to say yes to you, God. Mill City, now I know they invited me to come preach, and they, they didn't know what I was talking about. They're probably sad about that now. But I always pray, and I always ask God, God, what do you want to say to your people? And this is the word that God put on my heart, and I truly believe Mill City God has a purpose. God has a plan. He wants you to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to this community. He wants you to follow in the steps of that Samaritan. Even if you feel like you are ill-equipped, you have no business being wherever these hurting are. You have, you're, you're waiting for a neat, tidy kind of setup and presentation. Just say yes. 
just say yes to God, yes to whatever that uh, place is, yes to whatever that relationship is. God desires to use you. God desires to walk further with you. God desires for you to be those hands and those feet to the people who are hurting. I'm going to invite the the band to come back up. And as they're coming back up, play a nice little soft worship music there. I want to, I don't know how you all usually do this, but here's what I want to do. Is this okay? Can I do some? Okay, great. Thank you. I want to invite you into a place of prayer. And here's what's going to be unique about it is that I don't want you to just pray by yourself. Usually I know um, what can happen in churches, at least at my church. Sometimes what I do, I end a sermon, and I pray, and people, like, pray with me. But I like what I've seen thus far at Mill City. I love the the community. I love the connections that people are making. I love that you make intentional time to actually connect with one another. And so I want to honor that tradition. And here's how I want to do this. I would actually like us to take time to just pray with each other. Pray with each other for two things, because we, you know, we're not gonna be here all day, right? I guess we could if we wanted to. Can we be here all day? No. Yes. No. Okay. But I want to just name two things for us to pray for. First, I want us to pray for the hurting that are in our lives, that are in our community. And when I say in our lives, I simply just mean the folks who you know who you've been afraid to reach out to or you just know they're, they're just in a really tough place. I want you to very quickly pray for, pray for the hurting. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to actually do this. Say, God, we repent as a people and as a church. And if you're like, nope, I have nothing to repent for, then you definitely need to repent. <laughs> so that just lets you know I am right and you are wrong. I'm just kidding. But I I do. I mean, repenting is like a humbling thing, right? It just acknowledges. It's not saying, hey, you did something wrong. Now, you know, get rid of that. But it's acknowledging that, God, I haven't always been in tune and in step the way I've needed to be. That I've kind of rested on my spiritual laurels, if you will. I've I've kind of taken a backseat. I haven't always been as assertive or aggressive. I haven't always believed the way I've needed to. And so, God, whatever it is, right? What does David say? Search me, know me. And if there is any, you know, a right thing in me, remove it. And so here's what I'm going to do. Go ahead, find a partner, maybe, you know, a couple of people. Get in a circle real quick, and we're going to pray for those two things. Yep, yep, you can go ahead, get moving. Scoot over to your partner. You could turn around with the person behind you. I know you guys aren't scared to talk to and pray and say things to each other. So those two things, real quick. I'm going to give you a few minutes. Pray for the hurting. And then just take time to repent as a, as a church, as a community, as individuals, whatever that looks like. God, we uh, thank you so much for this word today, God, in this challenge. God, I thank you that you call us, God, to have an energetic and engaged faith, God, in our world. God, I thank you that you call us to be those hands and those feet, even when it's unexpected and even when it's inconvenient. And so, Father, we take time now to just say, God, we are sorry and we love that you love us and extend your grace to us. 
Help us to be the body that you've called us to be and the church that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name. And we all say together.